I think that one of the massive cultural shifts that has happened is that people think about story much differently. They don't see themselves like inhabiting a meta narrative or an overarching story. They see stories as being tools or instruments for themselves. You know, so like, so they don't actually think about being in a story or being in a grander story. They think about stories serving them. So to me, I think that the big challenge that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, uh, it's not good news when your most important stories serve you. In today's conversation, I sit down with my friend Ted Kim, who is senior pastor at the Evanston Vineyard just outside of Chicago, Illinois, to talk about searching for true story amidst many differing cultural stories in an ever-increasing post-secular world. What's our barometer or litmus test for whether or not the stories we're consuming on all of our streaming services, books, podcasts, and maybe someday again in movie theaters, whether or not these stories are true, good, or beautiful? How do we evaluate this? How do we base our lives on a true story? And what can Christian communities do to help people sift through the stories that they're consuming throughout their week. Ted Kim has been pastoring for over 20 years. He did his undergrad degree at the University of Chicago and holds a Master's of Divinity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Ted is also the son of Korean immigrants. So as we get to hear his story, one of the things that you can really look forward to in this conversation are the ways that Ted offers particular insights from his own cultural context that can help us see rich theological truths that sometimes a Western perspective can be a bit blinded to. So I trust that you're going to find today's conversation with Ted Kim to be as enriching, as thought-provoking, and as encouraging as I originally experienced it. Today's episode is made possible by the generous contributions of those supporting on Patreon. Make sure to stay tuned after the conversation to hear more about getting involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Ted Kim. What an honor, man. Uh, what an honor. Oh, so thanks Ted. for inviting me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to get to do this. Um, it's been a long time coming. We've got some overlapping friends. We do. Um, <laughs> but really, this is like our, our first real exchange beyond social media together. And I'd love to start just by doing a little autobiographical work, getting to know your background, and in particular, like your entry point as a disciple of Jesus. Like, where did that start? Mm -hmm. You're in vocational ministry as a pastor. When did you feel that calling? What does that look like? And then, you know, we'll get into some of the particulars about what, like, you feel called to in, in ministry and some of that stuff. But maybe maybe take us back just to, like, some of the life, the life background and your entry point into Jesus' discipleship. Well, so I'm the son of Korean immigrants. So my uh, my parents came to the States in the early 70s. Uh, they actually went to Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, and they they were like ten minutes apart. Um, when I catch snatches of like their story, it sounds like one of these impossible romances. You know? Wow! <laughs> Two Korean people, yeah, in without really knowing each other, all of a sudden descend to 
Lexington, Kentucky. My dad ends up at Transylvania University, which is a good university. But my uncle is like, you know, hey, I heard some things about this university. And to this day, I don't know what he would have heard about the university other than the name would have been familiar from like <laughs> Dracula. Dracula. <laughs> so he ends up at Transylvania. My mother ends up at a theological seminary. And then they're like one of the only two Korean immigrants in Lexington, Kentucky, they meet, they fall in love. And, wow. and then I was born here, but I grew up in a Korean home and, uh, being growing up in a Korean home, like part and parcel with that is sort of like Christianity. Um, Korea is one of the most Christianized nations in the world. I mean, of course that a lot of that happened at the, at sort of the end of the, the 19th century going into the 20th century. And of course there's like a ton of oppression um, so when we talk about imperialism and, clon and colonialism, like uh, we were, the Koreans were, were slaves. Uh, they were forced into labor by the Japanese. Um, and so that's part of our history as well. Uh, and, and I think that like in that particular moment, all of those things sort of work together um, for this like sort of massive, almost nationwide, con nationwide conversion to Christianity. So I like kind of grew up in a Korean home. Um, and so when all of this Christian nationalism stuff started happening, uh, and, and when, uh, when you would just start to hear, or at least I would start to read things about like America being almost the exclusive, uh, focus the or the last great hope of the world. Yeah. Right? Or, yeah. or like, yeah, like the, this is how the intention of God will be like realized uh, the kingdom of God being realized through like a country like America. I'm like a Korean person thinking, Hey, wait, <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you're going to pick a nation, yeah. uh, could we like to throw our hat in the ring? <laughs> because we, I mean, our, 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 our churches are like cathedrals. They're like palaces. I remember getting, going to one of my cousin's weddings and it was like they were just churning these people through because so many people were getting married in this like enormous church you know and um and this thing was like massive it was it was like beautiful and 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 for them it was just like oh yeah that's just the, that's the, that's one church i mean there's like hundreds of them right and uh and the largest church in the world of course is in korea and so like i grew up kind of in a christian christian home and it was just part of my upbringing um but uh, but I think that I what I've realized or what I've come to realize is uh, that um, I think a lot of a lot of my experience in the church has been what well, in the beginning was was Korean and then I had this middle period where I was going to multiracial churches and for me my experience was assimilation and now I'm like at this phase now where I'm trying to think about what does it look like to actually bring my whole self. Hmm. Um, what does it look like to, to bring, uh, the fact that I believe that God created me, um, to be Korean. I don't think that was an accident. I think that was part of his intention for me. And so what does that actually look like? How does how do I show up in spaces bringing my whole self? Uh, what are the, what are the riches and the poverties, uh, that I bring? Uh, I think one of the beautiful things about multiracial church is that you have these collisions of all these different cultures and um, the, the, the riches are clear, but so are the poverties. <laughs> In what you know? sort of ways? Uh, um, so like, for instance, here's the riches of my culture 
we are communal. So when we talk about communal engagement with spiritual formation, we get it. We understand it. You know, uh, we think about like groups of people moving together toward a particular end or toward a telos, which uh, and that for, probably helps you of, with the biblical narrative too. Oh, it totally helps me it, with the, because it's more hospitable to the Hebrew worldview yes, than I think definitely. the American worldview actually is. And so that's part of one of our gifts. But I think that one of our priorities is that we have a really, really difficult time speaking truth to power. We would rather be invisible. We would rather be like, hey, we're just kind of like, don't mind us. We're just like the Asians in the corner. Hmm. Is that one of the maybe side effects of a, a more collectivist culture is the, the desire for harmony might feel like it puts intense pressure on people to stay in harmony and that harmony might come at the cost of continued injustices? Absolutely. In fact, uh, Paul, I mean, like you, I could tell you story, almost story after story of what it looks like, you know, why, why there is corruption, say in place like Japan or like Korea or like China, you know, why is there corruption? Well, oftentimes, uh, if you're in, if you're in, if you're in Korea and you're working in a company and then you realize your boss is actually, is actually double dealing or doing something that's not, not quite right. Um, your whole floor, your whole group will be like, oh gosh, we need to protect him. So there's two things. We need to protect him because he's part of us. But the second thing is we can't let anybody know because it's going to fall on us as well. Wow. And so, uh, I mean, even, even if we think about the atonement, for instance, like when you think about like sort of like this individual transaction that I think that I hear quite often in the American church, the individual transaction of like, hey, I'm going to give my yes, life to you, Jesus. Right, right, right. And, then, and then you're going to save me from my sin, you know, um, and and then even like uh, even like atonement atonement metaphors like penal substitutionary atonement. I mean, like in Asian churches, it sort of doesn't make sense because yeah, we think yeah. we think of like the blood being spilled for a community or for a group of people. Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. And, yeah, I had a professor and, and, at seminary, David Na. He's Korean. Yeah. Oh yeah, that, that is Korean guy. Right? Yeah, yeah, and he was. Um, I probably had him more than any other professor. So, he, you know, he wasn't like the department chair or anything. But as as a Korean, one of the things he really helped me see and understand with, because uh, I had very little interaction with Asian cultures growing up. Um, you know, I had a next door neighbor that was adopted from Korea, but, right. you know, that was childhood interaction. His parents were still white Americans, so there wasn't that cultural interaction. And he had really helped me see, and as you bring this up, it totally reminds me of it. He really helped me see the difference as to how the cross is interpreted in honor and shame-based collective cultures versus that's our right. individualistic transaction. So I didn't mean to cut you off, but I'm like, oh no, my no, no, gosh, I remember that. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly it, though. Um, and so, I mean, I, I do think that uh, depending upon like what corner of the church you might be in, you know, in America. And one of the other things that I think is quite interesting is that you will find uh, churches with predominantly like black or indigenous or other people of color, like believing in different types of atonement metaphors, including like, you know, Christus Victor or whatnot, because that's like actually way better news yeah, for is. people who've been oppressed, yeah, you know? Um, and, 
And the odd thing also, I mean, speaking of that, uh, the odd thing about that is that uh, I think there's something, I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't want to use like this, like mystical, like, like it's like mystical alchemy, but there's something about being oppressed, something about being uh, people that are like non-majority. And there's something about being in that particularity that makes you super open to the work of the spirit. Well, that's the most common context of the original biblical audience, right? I mean, that's right. That's, yeah. that's where the work of the gospel was initially happening in. And so, so like for me as a Korean person and for me as a person who, uh, like my heritage, I mean, the, if you think about like slavery here in the States and then you think about like slavery here, like happening hundreds of years ago for Koreans, I mean, the memory is very fresh. It was just a couple of generations ago when we, we were experiencing some of this. I mean, like my grandfather was a Korean, he was a general, he was a five-star general in the Korean Marines. And I remember he was sitting in my car and I was driving a Honda Accord and he kept telling me, why are you driving a Japanese car? Why are you driving a Japanese car? You should get a new car. You should get a new car. I mean, he was sitting in this, in the car and, and and he was one of the most kind, humble, gentle men that I ever met. I mean, like he embodied what it would look like to me to be an emotionally healthy leader. And he's sitting in my car. I mean, like the wounds go really, really deep. And I, I think that because um, I think that typically, I don't know that the Asian story is like actually like super, I don't know that people are necessarily conversant with it. I think that Americans, or I think that Koreans and Asian Americans are just sort of waking up to what it looks like to have been a minority culture uh, in America. So I don't know that we could necessarily articulate, well, what does that wound actually look like? Uh, I think we're waking up to it. And we're trying to figure out, well, how do we reckon with with this particular wound as we relate to the church and as we relate to the country that we live in? And what does it look like for us to have a vocation and a calling sort of in in this particular spot? You know, um, but I but but just going back to the other point, like the the thing that we found solace in was actually the presence of God and the way that the presence of God actually um, actually manifested itself in our gatherings. And so we were like super open to the work of the spirit, even, I mean, like I'm in a Korean Presbyterian church and we're praying in tongues, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, like it's That's... a Korean Presbyterian church, part of the Presbyterian church of the USA. Yeah. And but we're isn't that, like, isn't that indicative of more of what the culture of the global church is like outside of predominantly white Western contexts? It is. Um, there's not a, I mean, even in the UK, it's different. I mean, you can go to the UK and, and you've got Europeans uh, that look ostensibly white that are like, we don't have the same hangups with the work of the spirit that we do here in the States. Um, but I know at least for my particular situation, uh, the work of the spirit always felt sort of like, uh, this, is, this is helping me see uh, that there is more than what I can actually like experience, taste, feel, touch. And uh, it's sort of like a down payment. It's like we are waiting for our exodus. And the down payment on the exodus is the uh, outpouring of the work of the spirit. And so I think that I experience, when I see some of this neo-charismatic stuff, seven mountain stuff, and I see 
um, all the the raft of people that are that are talking this way, um, whatever kind of uh, maybe learned sort of triumphalism that that sort of mm-hmm. exists in these spaces, it's confusing to me. Uh, but I think it's confusing to me because I experience that a lot differently. I experience the work of the Holy Spirit a lot differently. I experience it as a Korean person. And uh, and so <laughs> that changes the game for me a little bit. It doesn't feel like power to me. Like I hear, yeah, yeah, I hear yeah. a lot of people talk about like, you know, the charismata being like, I mean, we're addicted to power, but I don't experience it that way. Hmm. I experience it as something quite beautiful. Yeah, that know? was in a lot of ways, I think back to some of my childhood experiences and it was in, you know, historically, if we compare, especially with like high church traditions, charismatic and Pentecostal, whether they are explicitly labeled as that, or as in your case, a charismatic and Pentecostal infused church culture has a tendency, at least in my experience, it was growing up to be more diverse and so for me, like I was in a word of faith church. I mean, like reading wow. Kenneth Copeland every day. Yeah. But you know what? We had we had three or four black men on our uh, elder board. And it was no, it, there was nothing weird about it at all to have a woman preach, um, someone that wasn't white, a not, you know, a person of color preach. I mean, that was so so normal and those perspectives felt like um they they didn't feel it didn't feel like the dominion i mean it's weird to say because i was in word of faith culture and you might think there's few things more dominion theology than that but i think some of even the appeal of the word of faith theology and the prosperity gospel to people that were uh, of color, oftentimes in positions of less affluence and uh, less um, significance in our social hierarchy, was that they did see something transformative about the work of the Spirit in pulling them out and, in some sense, liberating them from like cycles of poverty, which is very, very different than if you have always been upper middle class or fairly rich, right? And now you're doing the name it and claim it stuff. Yeah. Um that's that's it's a really interesting dynamic, right? From your perspective, you get to see what you th- what you what you experienced as the the, the true gospel beauty of mm-hmm. charismatic and pentecostal streams. And how does that how has that affected or maybe been a point of particular uh, maybe giving you a sense of particular vocational call to step into ministry. Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, I just want to say one thing about poverty and cycles yeah. of poverty. Yeah. Uh, I think that what I notice when I talk to majority culture is sometimes that, like, when we talk about poverty, we talk about it like as an abstract concept, you know, or we talk about we don't talk about poverty with like any any real agency attached to it necessarily. We talk about it as like a state of being. Yeah, yeah. But that's not, I don't think that's how people of color experience poverty. And I'm not saying that that's what you're saying. I'm just, I just want to put a fine. Oh, good, please clarify. Like a fine, I understand, as I understand it, poverty is something that is done to, you know, or that, you know, like there's responsibility. And so any kind of liberation, I think, 
the, when it comes to liberality and the liberative work of the spirit, you kind of, the reason why Christus Victor is so appealing to us is that there are systems and there are people um, that have power to actually create conditions for other people where they cannot flourish, you know? Mm, yeah. And so, so, so the, so the untangling of, of all of that, um, it becomes like almost vivid promise when you experience, uh, the work of the spirit. That's good. You know? I'm so glad you brought that up, Ted, because there is, uh, there is a sense in which, um, maybe poverty is destructive and harmful cycles that we see in our culture. It can be that we sometimes remove agency from them, that we don't see uh, human agency behind them, that they're almost like, you know, forces of non-order, you know? And, That's right. And, and that there is, That's like, right. I do think there's, like, principalities and powers. I do think you know, so, too. You know, we've talked in previous episodes about this concept of hyper-objects, where you have <clears throat> something that, uh, like the stock market is an example of a hyper object right. where the stock market is a power from above, but it's also a power from below, right? We can participate in the stock market and yet I could pull out, I mean, I have hardly anything in my little Robin Hood app <laughs> at all. I could withdraw all my money from it, the few hundred dollars <laughs> that I have uh, invested in the market. And the market is not going to collapse. It's bigger than individual uh, moral agents, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and and I think actually to just to just to just to tag onto that, um, I think thinking about poverty as sort of like an abstract concept, or I mean, even neutral, is this thing that we're sort of like debriefing from as we become post secular, right? I mean, like institutions aren't neutral. Actually, they have the ability to be doxological or apostate, you That's know, right. a hyper objects like the stock market, public education, you know, these, these things, these building blocks of our culture actually have within themselves um, the direction, you know, like they point towards something and either they, they point upward or they point they point away, you know? Yeah, I mean, there truly um, are spirits of our age that set value systems for people. There are gods that we worship, right? And as we pursue those values, we make manifest those. And, and this is, charismatics are going to be fine with this language, right? <laughs> we, we make manifest particular spirits of, of, of the age in, in the, the human activity that's collaborated together in social groups that creates cultures, that creates yeah. these, these continued systems. Um, so, um, but I would yeah. even, just to, sorry to interrupt, but no, I would no. even say that, uh, um, I mean, that when you think about the provenance of how these things sort of happen, I mean, it's clear to see that, 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 that institutions get inculcated with values, right? You know, and those values actually move that institution uh, doxologically or move it in an apostate direction. Um, but the, but the fact of the matter is these institutions actually have a life of their own and they begin to exert influence on people, whether or not they have agency or not. I mean, like you, for instance, like when, when, when we started teaching, uh, evolution in the public school system, 80% of the country did not believe in evolution. They believed in creationism, you know? Um, but somehow, 
somehow this institution kept teaching this thing over and over again, which is not to say that I, I'm, I'm not actually, I'm not actually trying to, to, no, I hear the to point talk theologically making. about any of these concepts. I'm just yeah. saying that institutions carry in themselves, they exert influence on people, you know, um, and, and, and just even like, just even a shout out to this ferment podcast that you did with Adam Russell, uh, which I so, so enjoyed. Oh, thanks. Ted. You were talking about like people receiving or inheriting stories. That's right. You know, yeah. we inherit them from culture. We inherit them from our microcultures, like our families. But we also inherit them from institutions. Um, and it's not just a charismatic, it's not, it's not just a, I, like, at least in my recent reading, it's not just charismatics who are saying there is the spirit of the age. There's a God of this age, and it has blinded the eyes of people. So they cannot actually see the gospel. I mean, I hear like even the radical orthodoxy people over in Cambridge are saying this. They're saying, listen, the church is just as responsible for the secular myth as secular people are. Because the church basically said there are certain places in the universe that are neutral, that are devoid of any transcendence. You know, and so as long as we kind of like, we can kind of like, kind of like infiltrate those institutions and bring transcendence back in there, then we'll, we're good. And, and these radical orthodoxy guys, I mean, like I would hate to misquote them. I'm no scholar. I've just read some of their work and I really like it because uh, for a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons that I like it is because I am totally out on secularity. I do not believe in it at all. I do not believe that there are spaces in which there is no transcendence. I don't believe that at all. I like they're just, you just don't believe that there are these, like secularity as a concept, that there's a, a, a neutral, neutral right. spaces, a vacuums of values right. and gods. Right. Yeah. Or, or to use Charles Taylor's language, that there are places that are buffered. Yeah. That aren't, that aren't like, uh, aren't open mm-hmm. or are disembedded. You know, from whatever divine or demonic or however we would want to talk talk about it. I mean, this is not just charismatics. These these are like serious academicians, you know, that are saying, "Hey, this isn't this doesn't seem to be right." You know, and one of the things that I also find out find really interesting about about the move away from secularity is the uh, the 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 rediscovery. And sort of the re-welcoming of, of aesthetics, yeah. of arts and the humanities. Uh, you know, we like sort of in in and and you would know more about this than I would. But in my reading, I understand uh, that when we when we talked about beauty, you know, the Reformation people were kind of like, "Hey, we're we're a little we're a little suspicious of beauty because beauty feels subjective." You know, yeah. we want to like, we want to locate everything that we're doing uh, in, in things that we know to be certain and true. Um, and, and that's what I think one of the great gifts of post-modernity is. Post-modernity modernity helps us to see, you know, maybe we have been a little bit too positivistic uh, when it comes to, um, when it comes to some of the things that we so, so uh, have come to think of as these solid pillars of the church. I mean, you know, um, I would even say that that pot, and there are some things I believe that are incontrovertible and that are true, but I think that there are lots of things that got lumped into it, including white supremacy. Mm, yeah. You know, when you have like a posture of, of this positivistic posture, 
you can know everything to be certain and true, and you can know things to be cer certainly not true, and you lump white supremacy into it, all of a sudden, this conversation becomes way different. And so I love, I love these like radical orthodoxy guys, and I like, I feel like a strong, strong like uh, uh, attraction to and desire to think, think in terms of aesthetics, and to like reshape or retell the story of the gospel um, with 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 beauty, holy in mind. Yeah, you know? yeah. So okay, so how do we do that? You know, you as a pastor, you know that people in your church. We all know this. This is not. I don't think it's changing. I don't want to. I don't even know if I'd say it's pessimistic. It's just. It's just a reality of our current cultural dynamic. You know that people are consuming more stories via streaming services, books, podcasts, cultural stories. You know that that's happening. They're doing that way more, spending way more time at home than they are listening to your sermon, Ted, or, or anything <laughs> I have to say. Um, they're, they're doing that more than they're consuming biblical literature. They're doing that more. I mean, you and I have felt this... Uh, a hunger to know God in such a way that we both get enjoyment out of something like, oh, let's pick up a radical orthodoxy book. But that's not <laughs> that's not the experience probably of most people. It might even be of people that listen to this podcast. I, I get that. But I'm really curious, like, so we think about the way that w these stories um, actually Im get embedded into us, right? The, 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 the experiences of beauty. And and those aesthetic creations point to that domain of spirit. Right. They point to right. the values and the gods that people worship, some of which are good, some of which are destructive. So what do you do as a pastor to help people make sure that the guiding story they follow, they say, this is what's true, good, and beautiful. This is how I'm going to orient my life. How do you as a pastor help people be shaped more by the story of Jesus than the cultural narratives, or at least the parts of our cultural stories that are dissonant with what is true, good, and beautiful found in God's grand story? Yeah, um, that's a, such a huge question. But I will say a couple of things that I'm, I'm, I, um, I am willfully attempting to do as a pastor. Uh, one of the things that I think is that we need that we that we need to do, I think, as as people who who just believe profoundly and have found like our found like our highest good in Jesus, uh, is to think about stories in and of themselves, right? I mean like the thing about stories now is that exerted upon people are these two enormous levers, right? Like one lever is global international capitalism, right? And the other level is internet. So what does that actually do to people? And how does it make people think about story? Well, I think that one of the massive cultural shifts that has happened is that people think about story much differently. They don't see themselves like inhabiting a meta narrative or an overarching story, they see stories as being tools or instruments for themselves. Wow. wow. You know, yeah. so like, yeah. so they don't actually think about being in a story or being in a grander story. They think about stories serving them, which, which uh, we could say a whole lot about. I mean, you could talk about fan fiction. I mean, like, seriously, fan fiction. I mean, 
just the rejiggering or the rewriting of stories around narratives that seem like really appealing. Like, I mean, you think about, think about like Harry Potter, for instance, like Harry Potter uh, being written by like the transhumanist utopians, like in San Francisco. And like all of a sudden, like now they're saying, we're going to, we're going to solve Voldemort and all the problems in Harry Potter by, uh, by using and this is this 900 page document like like let's use wow. all of our transhumanist rationalist principles and let's solve the Voldemort problem and wait this is sudden, really a thing no this is really a thing I didn't know it that is re- wow. it is really it is really really a thing and the thing that you know like you and I both love Star Wars we have seen I mean come on I mean there's so much around Star Wars right I mean I've I've even read some of it. I mean, I've read like I read the stuff that got disavowed. It's no longer part of the yeah, canon or whatever. I mean, I just I read all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. didn't, didn't read all of it, but I read a lot of it. Um, the, I think that uh, I think that the good news behind that is that stories have so much power, right? Uh, when we think about meaning making, as you as you you know this, and I hear you, I hear you on this, and I hear you talk about this, and I've learned from you in this. You know, stories are just so powerful uh, as we think about meaning making, but when, but when you exert these two levers of capitalism and the internet, you start to think, well, I'm, the stories just serve me. And, and, and the stories that I have to pay for are the ones that are more actually meaningful and real to me. Wow. And so, so to me, I think that the big challenge that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, uh, it's not good news when your most important stories serve you. Hmm. Oh, man. That's... I mean, there's a fragility and yeah. a frangibility to that. Mm. Uh, because um, we wake up, we wake up, well, there's a bunch of things, right? I mean, like, I mean, just even going to the Sermon on the Mount, we are not fully aware of ourselves. That's why we need one another, right? Uh, that's why we need to live in a community. Now, Koreans get this. Like you become your whole self in the context of community. And Jesus, Jesus was like, hey, you know, it doesn't work if you don't have a community that doesn't call out the specs and that isn't humble about the planks. You know, um, it doesn't, community does not work unless people uh, speak to one another, call each other out, challenge one another um, so that they can be whole, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then like if, you sto- if your story is serving you, rather than you are living into a particular story, where does actually the challenge happen? Mm-hmm. You know, like there, there are whole parts of myself that I am not awake to unless I have really good friends. Mm. Good friends who can challenge me. Like yeah. one of my really good friends is Adam Russell. One of my, I mean, I love Adam and Adam will call me out. And I've got good friends in the vineyard. I think that like the vineyard, one of its, one of one of its great gifts to me is um, that it's super hospitable to spiritual friendship, you know. Um, but I, I think that that's the one thing that I'm trying to say. Hey, you don't want all the meta narratives in your life to be ones that you choose and ones that you you kind of abandon when they don't serve you anymore. That's not good news, mm. you know. Well, um, oh man, yeah. Because, because that's the, the reality of the matter is, and I, I think that we're in like a particularly fraught cultural moment because we have to, we have to help people. Um, we have to help people toward Sorry, the, I hear- the <laughs> understanding. 
that was my theory, toward the understanding that living into a story that people have been living into for years and years and years and years and have found the highest good in it, when they point together toward something, you know, um, we have to, I think that it's my job as a pastor to help people see that that's the really good news, hmm. you know. Um, and the other thing about stories serving us is uh, what it does is it, it creates like this fictitious community around stories, you know, um, where we show up not as our whole selves. We show up with part of ourselves and become involved in these super particular tribes, you know, around like the transhumanist utopians is one example, you know. Um, but I mean, even the the red pill, the blue pill, all that, the black pill, even, you know, Chaz and Stacy's. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, like all yeah. of those particular stories, they like they have something compelling about them and they they gather people toward them and to them. Um, and as like I think that you and I both share admiration for Tom Wright. You know, um, Tom yeah. Wright would just say, hey, the proof is in the eating. Yeah. And you watch. I mean, I think the really the, the, the big question that that I think that we need to continually ask is is not just like, hey, not just tell them, hey, it's not actually really good news for you when all of your meta narratives are ones that you choose and ones that you'd actually like they serve you because it cuts you off from from community. I mean, the people that you con are in contact with is just I mean, like the contact is is minimal in comparison to people that you got to live with, you know? So um, are you calling into question for people pastorally to just even just say fundamentally, <clears throat> what, what is the telos right, right. of our consumption of story? That's right. That's right. Exactly. So you're saying if, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think it's something really profound here that I think I'm tracking with, and I want to make sure listeners are tracking with too here that we have already missed the story of Jesus in some sense if we see that story as a means to our own ends and then if we thrust upon the rest of the stories that we see in our culture a disposition towards them that sees them as tools to continue or, right to make ourselves the main character that's right in the story we that's have right. already missed god's story is that is that a good that summation is, yeah that's great that's great and and i think that like uh this is why i think that you see like uh a rise uh in and why you see like um i think like we we you know we have some proximity we're proximal to like large universities here uh, and staff workers will just say, you know, like, um, it's not uncommon for me to have people that are on at my like Christian fellowship who will just pick and choose. What are they going to do this week? Well, they're going to go, they're going to go to church. What are they going to do next week? They're going to go to temple. Yeah. Uh, what are they going to do the following week? Well, they're going to do something actually different. Uh, what are they reading? Well, they're reading the Bible, but they're also reading the Quran. What are they all, uh, you know, like, because what are they doing? They are like, they're placing themselves above the story. Because I think that's the thing that individual, uh, individual exceptionalism does. You know, like it, it disorders us, like in the context 
of of what meaning actually looks like. It puts meaning into our own hands. We make it, we're responsible for it. And and this is why we're the most anxious that we've ever been. And thus, we are functionally putting ourselves in the seat of Christ. We are putting ourselves in the seat of Christ. In the judgment we seat. Not, we do not belong there. Uh, yeah, we could get, we could take, we could talk a long time about judgment, but we do not belong there. And what it does is it shows up in our bodies. Yeah. Well, I, I don't mean uh, judgment in the sense of, you know, eschatological, but I mean in the judgment seat of being able to evaluate right, right, right from wrong, right. to name right. how things ought to be in the world. Right. And, and is it any surprise that we have like a, a particularly agitated and dangerous, I would even say, cancel culture, call out culture, all of that. I mean, like, what does it do? Like when you put yourself in that seat, all of a sudden you become the arbiter, like who belongs and who doesn't, you know? And we have all these tools at our disposal where we can just cancel people if we want to, you know? Um, We can destroy somebody's life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, completely and utterly antithetical to any gospel that leaves room for the perpetrator and that leaves room for repentance and the return, you know, um, the stories don't work. And, and this is the thing that I think, uh, that we can say from as pastors, we can just say, where's the, where, where, what kind of room do you have in your stories for mercy and grace? (laughs) You know, um, I mean, for other people, but also for yourself. Does your story, like, does your story create room uh, for you to be beloved? Mm. And and actually, um, I know that you and I share like a share a love for Tolkien. Uh, one of the things that I so so love about Tolkien is um, how merciful Frodo becomes. Uh, oh, when, yeah. I mean, there's even that exchange between Frodo and Gandalf about, oh, you know, you know, Bilbo should have just killed off Gollum long ago. Yeah. And well, and then also at the end, which I, 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 oh. I, I mean, like, I will say this. I said this. This is a hot take. I don't think anybody like agrees with me, but I sort <laughs> of feel like when you miss the scouring of the Shire, you sort of miss the whole point of the book. Uh, or the whole point of the whole three books. You know, I'm still kind of waiting. Is Peter Jackson going to do like four movies on the Scouring of the Shire and make this thing like just this gigantic bloated thing where all of a sudden we like are making up characters and whatnot, you know? Yeah, say more um, about that for people that might not be as familiar with Tolkien and the Scouring oh, of the well, Shire. Oh, so, okay, so, you know, like at the end, they have to return home. So, so uh, you know, like they go someplace and then they come back. You know, um, and then they go someplace. Uh, and I even think, you know, like I was talking to one of our mutual friends. We, I have this like a little text thread about about Lord of the Rings, you know, with a couple couple of our mutual friends like Adam and John Mark McDonald. And we were just talking about like, you know, these guys go and this journey feels like it hangs on this like super perilous like task to get rid of this ring. And so 
you know, liberate the new world so that it can go into being without being trampled by like Sar, you know, Sauron and 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 evil. And and some people criticize um, Lord of the Rings because it's maybe a little too two dimensional when it comes to that. And yeah, too I understand that. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 for me, the real gold in in Tolkien is the fellowship. It is it's the friendship. It's these guys that are together, um, and they have to do this thing together. Uh, and um, I mean, even like as we as as we have texted about this, we like you know what's the difference between Gollum and 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 Frodo and Samwise? Well, Gollum doesn't have friends. He he. In fact, Frodo is so merciful to Gollum uh, that that Gollum, Gollum doesn't understand it. I mean, Gollum just keeps calling him master, but Frodo, like you know, Frodo, Frodo, Frodo. Sometimes he leads into that, but Gollum is friendless. Gollum killed his friend for a thing, yeah. and then you have this these this little small band of this group of people that are friends, you know, um, and then they return because they're hobbits. You've probably seen the movies. They're hobbits, and they go. And what the what the movies don't show, um, they do two things. I think uh, that are almost unforgivable for me. The first thing that they do is, uh, and I think it's really hard to do. I think that the last seventy pages before they return home, and they are they are like reveling in their victory, are some of the most luminous pages in all of literature. There is so much joy, and joy is so hard to do. Yeah. But there's such a payoff, and and I mean, these pages are almost like filled with light. There's so much joy and there's so much happiness. There's so much singing and there's so much eating and they're all together. And that's what and the journey just, was headed towards. That like was, that is then, the, that's the, the goal of it more so than the destruction of the ring. The destruction of the right. ring leads to the joy. Exactly. Exactly. It leads to the joy. Uh, and it happens in such a surprising way, um, which I think is just super brilliant. And, but then they go home and then they find out uh, that their home, uh, the Hobbit's home, the Shire, has been taken over by one of the villains in the earlier books. Uh, two villains get together, Grim and Wormtongue and Saruman, and all of a sudden they've taken up residence in the Shire, and and they have changed the Shire and made it like this rude instrument for basically their power and their pleasure. And um, and so it's up to the Hobbits now to sound the alarm and to raise the hobbits up together um, so that they could take out Saruman or Sharky and Wormtongue. And um, this is like one of the most beautiful parts of the book for me. When they've actually won, Frodo extends mercy to Saruman and to Wormtongue. The journey for him changed him. Uh, in the space of that, he reckoned with his fragility and his brokenness and his humanity, and he became merciful. Uh, he changed, you know? And so like, that's one of the things that I, I love about, about Lord of the Rings. Um, I think that the external pressure of living the true life that points to Jesus in this container uh, this broken world that will be renewed, but the container of kind of like the false life, you know, um, if we can, per, if we can, if we can live that true life within this false container, uh, exactly what you say, said Paul, we will be surprised by joy. And we will find ourselves 
at the end of that journey, being different people, uh, being able to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness where we just didn't think we could, uh, having the type of internal fortitude uh, to realize uh, that grace and mercy is the most courageous and human thing that we can actually do. And so when people actually take stories and make them serve themselves, they do not end up in this space. Uh, because um, these stories are picked, uh, these stories are are utilized um, toward something, you know, and that's something, whatever you want to call it, maybe you would call it like actualization, self-actualization, you know, like I, like I know that we're both mutual admirers of Charles Taylor, you know, um, the highest goal uh, for people living in an individual exceptionalist like society is self-actualization, you know, and it changes the way that you look at everything, you know, um, but you don't become your whole self. No, that. no. I mean, this gets at the, the heart of Romans, Romans one sort of theology is that created things are always in and of themselves intended to point to the reality that goes beyond them. That's, that's right. That's what the symbol and the beauty. I mean, I'm just looking at this wonderful icon you have in your background of Jesus, that's right? It's, just, yeah, it's there a we go. really, really rich icon, but the, it is not Jesus in and of itself. It is not no. that, but it is to point to something beyond it. And this is what stories can do do for us, they can serve just as all of creation can in being a symbol that says, okay, in and of itself, there is goodness here, but yeah. we want to keep kind of, we want to keep following that trail of goodness. And it really That's is, right. uh, the, the, the joy of all of this is that it gets to be for us as finite beings, a never ending journey that's As right. we continually grow closer and closer to the source, I mean, we look at that icon and has Eastern Orthodox connections, and I think of the, the great things that the Eastern Orthodox tradition has brought to bear to highlight from the scriptures of this journey of theosis, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of that God has become a man so that we could participate in becoming one with one with God, not on mm. you know, not in essence, but of course in that in that journey, and so. Even I just, I've heard you do something right now that seems to offer in your methodology, like a real practical guide for people. You see Frodo's mercifulness as something good, as, uh, and as, a, as an exemplar to be mm -hmm. modeled. But your ability to name that as good is rooted in a prior affirmation of a true story. The, That's right. The, the the grand story of scripture, and if we right. if we replace that with self actualization or some other thing, and I think even like one of the one of the things that and I just did a video about you know what what makes Luke Skywalker such a great character, and one right. of the things I, I, I was reflecting I on, <laughs> one of the things I was reflecting on is, and I'm not like a hater of the sequel trilogy, but one of the things I noticed in that was like Ray's journey is primarily a journey of self-realization. The whole narrative arc for her is a, is a discovery of, well, who am I? And, you know, there's, there's valuable things. Like, there's, there's things that God's put in us that we need to uncover, and I, I see value in that journey. But I compare that to, like, the narrative arc of a Luke Skywalker, mm. whose character is constantly being shaped and formed in a particular way to become more virtuous 
to be like more of a blessing to the world. And in the end, his act, to me, his final act, because I, I don't include the, the, the sequel pictures of Luke <laughs> in my head canon. <laughs> to me, his, his final act is an act of mercy and forgiveness. And the, that is so, that so deeply resonates with me. And I think it really does, even for those that don't um, give cognitive assent to the propositions of Scripture, there is, when we encounter true beauty in stories, beauties, beauty that has harmony and resonance with the ultimately true story, there is something in us that goes, there's, this is something good. Like, yeah. it's so interesting to me. Like, you know, Luke, George Lucas could have had Luke just, you know, slay Darth Vader, right? Because that right. would have, you know, he's following Joseph Campbell's hero's journey right. arc. Right. You know, you can at that final stage of the, the hero's journey before heading home, like in what you see in Tolkien as well, like before <laughs> they head back to the Shire, yeah. you know, uh, Campbell called it the atonement with the father. So you confront a father figure and you could, in Joseph Campbell's mind, you could either kill and overcome that father or you can go through an experience of atonement. And that, that Lucas chose to have Luke be set right with his father. To me, as I don't even think it's just me as a follower of Jesus. I think for a lot of people, they see that story and they go, that's a more beautiful story than a story of self-actualization that Ray goes through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually think that when you put self-actualization and you, you put it out there and you start to articulate it, I don't think it, I don't think it's good news to anybody. Hmm. You know, I, 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 and and that's why I think like you keep using beauty and you keep using the word, like, uh, what does beauty actually point to? You know, um, that's why I think beauty is so, so important. And that's why I think we need to keep pointing to it uh, because beauty tells us that the thing that is beautiful um, is not, that beauty is not contained in itself. It like points to something, right? You know, yes. um, like beauty carries, like one of my favorite, one of my favorite books that I read over the last couple of years is about, about like beauty, about aesthetics, beauty, and like injustice, and and one of the things that the author says is that beauty carries with it, within it, greetings from beyond, right? And so, um, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, like if if the story had ended any differently, it would have been it would have followed the script, but would it have been beautiful? You know, um, and I I agree with you. I don't think it would have been beautiful, and I think actually people have. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking as a Korean person, so I don't even know if this is baked into the um, American story or not, but I think people have an inborn, um, maybe like instinct of what is actually more beautiful at the ending of that particular story and why it carries so much more resonance. I mean, imagine if he had killed Darth Vader. I mean, would we have sequels? Would we have all the stuff that we would have right now? You know, like um, we know for some reason uh, that acts like that acts of uh sort of violent differentiation i guess you might call it um are injurious to us somehow you know um and so i feel like my job is to say 
hey, uh, let's just actually like, let's, let me ask you, you know, like whatever story that you were particularly living into, does that actually point you toward the telos of your highest good? You know, oh, that's um, a great question, Ted. Wow. Does it? I mean, like, and, and I think that the, the particular cultural moment that we live in right now is that we do ask questions. Yeah. You know, we don't like tell people, well, it's not going to work. <laughs> we tell people, we ask people, consider it. Like, what is the fruit? Hmm. If the proof of the pudding is in the eating, what's the eating like? You know, and, uh, and the other good news is, is, that I think that because people are so inured to story and they're so hospitable to story that we can fill our sermons and our podcasts and everything that we speak about with literature and art and with music. You know, um, we can tell the story of HBO's Chernobyl and it will feel, even though it's, doesn't follow the historical script point by point, it will still mean something to people. Um, and so the other thing that when I hear you talk about this, I'm going to steal this, by the way, um, go for it. your stuff about Star Wars. But when I, when I, when I hear uh, you talk about it, I go, yeah, that, that actually works for people. Um, you don't need like a real life example I think we like the examples are really, really important, but the stories, I think the stories that, that are like in our culture, um, uh, the books that we read, the fiction that we read, you know, the things that we love so much, uh, they can, they become fodder and for the way that we can talk about the gospel, yeah. you know, and so one of my priorities is to include, uh, some work of literature, uh, some piece of art, or something that I've watched in my messages, you know, like I want to quote literature, I'm going to talk about a series that I watched, you know, I want to do those types of things, um, because for, for a couple of reasons, I do think that when we are arrested by something that beautiful, we recognize that there's something more there than just the act itself, that it's pointing to something. So I think it helps people. Um, but I also think that when we do that, we help people to think critically yeah, we about do. about the stories that they are ingesting, and uh, and all and my understanding of the research about the generations that are coming is that critical thinking, because of how much curation they're doing, so much stuff being thrown at them, is at the top of the list. You gotta teach your young people how to think critically. Yeah, you, you have to teach them um, how to see. Uh, what's beautiful about a story and how to see where it falls short. Hmm. Uh, what's great about a movie and where it falls short. Uh, you have to help them to see that uh, because they can just go from one show to the next. Um, and then without realizing it, uh, they can habituate themselves to whatever story is in there. Yeah. And that's the crazy thing about stories, right, Paul? I mean, like, we don't choose our stories. No. You know, they, not, not I mean, in the even, rational, you know, we're just going to weigh out the pros and cons here. Yeah. I mean, even if we were like, uh, even, even if stories are going to serve us, we don't really choose those stories. You know, um, we sort of like fall in love with them. You know, like, I mean, uh, uh, 
I really liked that movie Avatar. I mean, I know that it's not a great movie or whatever, but I loved it. I loved it. I wanted to see it a couple of times because I'm like, man, that's such a cool. That's so cool. Like, like the the all of the the planet that they were living on, you know. I mean, yeah, the mythology, the yeah, mythology, yeah, and yeah. all that. I mean, I know that there are lots of problems, and I know that yeah. if you're a critical race theorist and you're listening to this, you're probably just like, oh, I just miss everything this guy's saying. But anyway, like what I liked about that was this thing was beautiful. And I remember like actually reading, uh, I remember reading a story about some, uh, about a couple of people that took their lives because they couldn't live in that world. Oh, oh. Uh, well, how did that happen? It didn't happen because they were thinking about it. It happened because something grabbed their heart. They fell in love with it. And, and so that's the other thing that I feel like we have to do. We have to teach people how to love, you know? What does love look like? You know, it's like early church father, St. Augustine, he said, you know, like you teach, you teach kids how to love before you teach them how to think, you know? Um, and that kind of right ordering of love is the other thing that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say, hey, beware of the bewitching stories out there that will, that will compete for your love. There's these twin tensions, though, I hear you bringing up that there are these bewitching. I like that. That's a good word to describe it. There are these counter narratives, but there is something like in your practice, if you're going to incorporate an excerpt from a beautiful piece of literature or bring up a scene from a film, you're also saying something implicitly, an implicit theological statement about Christ's activity in culture, which I think is is really important. I think of my own maybe um, experiences in, in, you know, as an 80s, 90s kid in evangelical culture, which was very much in some ways the mode of engagement with culture was suspicion. Uh, we saw more malevolence in the works mm-hmm. of culture than we did. We, we were not as open to the possibility that Christ was at work in culture. And at some, some level, we have to, we have to confess there, there is no cultureless revelation, right? There's no cultureless Christianity. There's no cultureless um, disclosure of God in the world. It always comes because we're cultural beings. It always comes through language and symbol. Mm-hmm. And, that's right. And, and, and that's that's true of the biblical literature in and of itself. God was at work within those cultural contexts, using the language, using their customs to reveal himself. Um, so I hear these tensions right, that, that we have to somehow continue to wrestle with, which would be that we see the activity of God outside of the walls of our church. Absolutely. That, that Christ is present there. Uh, Van Hooser, Kevin Van Hooser calls it uh, the latent church, Yeah, you know, that the Spirit is present and at work in Hollywood, in Netflix, and yet— right. The other part of that tension I hear you saying is if we allow ourselves to essentially mindlessly be shaped or to have even our loves shaped by those stories, we may lose sight of the true grand story of Scripture. So how do we live in those tensions, Ted? How do you bring that up in a sermon and then not have somebody just go home and be like, 
Well, you know, Pastor Ted this Sunday brought up something from, you know, I don't know. I've just picked something, you know, <laughs> I, I can't, you know, uh, stranger, stranger things. I know that, you know, that's not necessarily been in the cultural zeitgeist this year. And, and then they go home and, you know, they binge the entire series of Stranger Things, and maybe they come out thinking that there are things in that story that are more true than the Christian story. Mm. So how, how do we help people live in that tension? Is it, Paul, I mean, maybe it's just a work in progress that we're all trying work, to, to sort I, Paul, through. you know, yeah. you, you got to help me. You got to help me figure this I don't out. Know. Because th- yeah. But that, that is the thing, though. I mean, like, uh, I think the reason why, like, you know, like even when we were having a pre-conversation about this, we were talking about the ways that we actually have experienced the manifest presence of God somehow in these, like, works of fiction, you know, like Space Trilogy or yes. yeah. Space Trilogy, which to me, like, actually formed my theology. Uh, uh, and in more significant ways than I can think of, like C.S. Uh, Lewis's space trilogy for those. Yeah, C.S. Lewis's yeah. space trilogy, right? I mean, like I, uh, um, and then also like Tolkien, you know, um, and I, I mean, like Tolkien's work. I, I mean, I think see, see, there's a certain deliberate deliberateness about the way that Jesus shows up in space in the space trilogy that sort of is kind of lurks underneath the pages of Tolkien you know, um, but we still, yet we somehow still met God in it, you know, um, and I do believe that, like, even in, I, I, I do believe that, like, uh, as part of, uh, part of our, our new, the new world in which we will inhabit, we will have these rich cultural artifacts that we can enjoy, you know, um, so for me, I, I think that, like, uh, I think that two things to me need to happen. One is um, we, I, I think that we have to become as people who practice proclamation. So the three sons of the kingdom, proclamation, casting out demons, <laughs> healing people, you know, um, in the vineyard, I think that we are in a moment now where I kind of wonder if we are saying, wait, what about proclamation? You know, um, I think that the proclamation uh, of our meta narrative, the Christian narrative being the most beautiful story, has to happen. I don't know how we do it. I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, it gets really tangled up with the modern American church and people standing on stage and talking to people. Yeah, and yeah. I know that proclamation is important, um, but. Uh, but we've created these little little mounts that we stand on and and we talk. But I mean, like, how do we? The question that I'm asking is, how do I, uh, how do how how do I help people to see that this is the pearl of great price and we should leverage everything that we have to have it? You know, this particular story and and how beautiful it is is the most beautiful thing that in the universe. And I will give every everything up to have it. You know. I mean, how do I, how do I talk about it that way? I mean, I mean, there's, that's really hard. I mean, like, how do we cast a vision for the kingdom of God um, that doesn't just stand next to all these other stories, uh, but actually does the thing that it does, which is stand supreme, you know? And to me, I mean, this is a question for me about pedagogy and the way that we, 
talk about Jesus in the church and how we tell stories about Jesus. And I think that we're getting better and better at it. I mean, like the chosen, you know, that, that series, it's beautiful. Uh, even the Bible project. I mean, that is like what oh, yeah. years ahead of, any, of anything that we've, we've, the church has ever, ever produced, but that type of thing, um, the marrying of the charisma or, or the proclamation with um, with a fine eye toward um, toward beauty, I think has to those things have to work together, and I think new kinds of storytelling need to actually happen than just oration. Yeah, that's you know? true. Now, certain people are really really good at it, and I'm not telling you don't do it. I'm just saying for me when I start thinking about this, my my dream is that uh, that a message actually, um, and I don't know how we're going to do this, but that my dream is that when we preach a message, the message uh, has dimensions to it. It's not just a person talking, but it's mm. storytelling. It's it's yeah, other kinds of things. Yeah, it's embodied. Yeah. It's enfleshed, so that um, people have an experience or at least a glimmer of an experience of what it could look like to give yourself to the story that is supreme to all the other stories, the story that you and I have sold everything, leveraged everything to have. Now, I'm not saying that if I had lived in another world, if I had been a doctor or whatever, you know, I'd make a lot of money. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is everything that, this is everything for me. And I think it's incumbent on us to think about ways that we can retell or proclaim uh, the kingdom of God as the most beautiful story, the most compelling story, the most attractive story, the story that will yield for us the highest good, the story that will yield for us like the most meaning and mystery, you know, um, things that are unknowable, things that are knowable, all of that, all, all together, you know, I'm the thing that will cause my family to flourish, the thing that will give me comfort and intimacy in my deepest sufferings, all of those things. I think it's incumbent on us to paint that picture, you know, um, uh, because I think that like, we can't dismantle all of these stories. We can just say, Hey, like stranger things. I enjoy stranger things. I really like stranger yeah, things. Yeah, I love it too. Yeah. Um, but, but I also think the stranger things is like the perfect to me, it's the perfect liminal show for what it looks like when a society is becoming post-secular, you know, you got all these people and they're like, yeah, whatever we can see, feel in touch. And then all of a sudden, no, there's like this upside down and there's mm. this, like yeah, this, yeah. this other it's, realm that actually overlaps our realm, which is like, so Charles, actually Charles like, Taylor's haunting. Yeah, it's just like so it right and it's haunted, right? So it's like yeah. it's evil. It's in the not purest actually, sense of the word. It's, it's, it's not actually yeah. it's not actually a good thing, you know. Yeah. And so I mean I think we can say things like, you know, um, I just want you to know that uh that 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 the upside down, could there be someone who loves you? Um is there a different kind of story than the one that this one's imagining? To me, that takes a whole lot of work. And I think we need to do it, but um uh, it's only when we are arrested by the supreme story when that has the when that occupies the the top of our ordered laws um that we can actually like we can actually like look at these other stories and see them for what they are you know and so yeah. i feel like i feel like my what's incumbent upon me is to to 
to help form people toward that. And, um, and then to, to, to become like Jesus in the world to me means, um, that they can enjoy them from what they are, Mm. you know, gifts. Um, they can, they can praise Jesus for them, you know, uh, without actually coming underneath them, because that's the thing. When we want stories to serve us, what, what do they actually, what do we actually do? It's like, it's like, they're like kind of like addictions, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like they become pleasures that rule us, you know, and, and I'm trying to like, you know, where does actually freedom live? Where does it live? And is there more constraint? Sure. You know, um, but, but, but trust me, let's walk together on this. Those yes, are things that I'm trying yes. to untangle. The walking together part, and I just, to, to maybe connect a bunch of pieces here as you were talking, I was thinking about even your own, your own journey as a Korean American and the gift that it is, Ted, the gift of culture, not, not a monolithic, singular cultural right. supremacy, but the gift of Christ's work, not just in individualistic American culture, in which there are good things to bear and to, to bring out of that cultural story, but the, the culture that your parents grew up in, the presence of Christ is at work there. What's, mm. been, hap- what's been happening in the African-American story in America? There are unique things about God's story that have been happening in black culture that I can't fully see unless I walk together with someone that's, right. that's lived oh, that's into so that. And so maybe, uh, you know, this wasn't like a leading question. I, I was asking you, I, it really dawned on me as you were talking, because like, man, Ted, Ted is bringing so many good things to me right now, like expanding my perspective. And the question about how do we live in the tension of these stories might be that at least this isn't like the easy solution, but it is a, um, it's a, it's a methodological step that we could probably take to say, hey, you know what? I am going to view you and what God has done in your family, your microculture, as possibly containing some glimpse into mm. the story of Scripture that I am missing. Like, I can't read it. I can't, mm. I can't see it there. There's a limitation. And so maybe mm. even in just these sorts of dialogues, Ted, there is the opportunity for us to be like, hey, you know what? You, you mentioned just offhandedly that there might be some people like really offended by the story of Avatar, you know, and I can see that. And without hearing them, there's something good that I need to wrestle with in hearing. You know, there, you know, there could be some white savior complex stuff <laughs> happening yeah. in that story. But if I don't hear it and I absorb that story, especially, you know, it might not hit you in the same way. But I became, I was really glad people brought that to my attention as a white guy in America because if I wasn't aware of it, that story could have continually fed a biased story that has been part of this kind of manifest destiny nationalistic story where yeah. I go into native cultures. And I'm not saying this is the whole story of Avatar. Oh, I think there's still course, a lot yeah. of beauty that you're, you're highlighting, Ted. But I'm glad people brought that challenge to me because I, without that challenge from their own culture, cultural experience, 
I might have assumed or imported that part of the story and said, hey, you know what? I think this is true. You know? <laughs> so I think practically even just maybe one thing we can do is just do what we're doing here now and extend those conversations yeah. outwards into a and to remain like with a, a posture of the heart that's always open to sanctification and to having the story refined together. Um, because you you brought up some things even just about I, I and we I think maybe even a few months ago you you had brought some really good challenges to me on Twitter. <laughs> I just maybe I'm making this up, but I distinctly remember some challenges that were from a less individualistic framework that I realized, oh, that is still a blind spot in me where I might consume individualistic stories and go, yep, there's total resonance <laughs> with the gospel on this because I haven't, I haven't seen um, the beauty and gift of Christ's work happening in other mm -hmm. cultures outside my own. I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, no, I love it. I, I I think that what you're saying, what I hear you saying, uh, and this is the thing that I I, I really believe, um, which I find actually. So, you know, like I'm a pastor, and I'm in this like, I pastor a church. I'm like, I'm actually transitioning the church from the founding pastor, and I'm I've taken over this thing, you know, uh, and. And even just that, 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 that what you just said, um, I think is something that for some reason we need to highlight, which is uh, the way I think that many of us unwittingly, unintentionally deny the plurality of God's speaking voice. Wow. Yeah. And how Definitely. he works, you know? Um, so, so how does he speak? How does he work through the other? You know, um, I'm like a big fan of, of, uh, this ethicist named Oliver O'Donovan. And, um, and, and one of the things that he talks about is he talks about how like, uh, uh, no, no human collective can ever be commanded. Uh, you know, like uh, the kingdom will never show up in a human collective that can actually be commanded or wed like politically, uh, because he's like, we need that. We need, it is in uh, the plurality of nations gathered at the throng of Jesus um, yes. that we see the face of Christ, you know? Yes. And so, I mean, everything that you're saying, I totally agree with. And I think that like two things that I would say is like, you know, for me, that's why I love being in a multiracial church. Uh, I love actually, you know, um, being like not the not the majority uh, and i love that there is no ethnic or racial majority in our church you know uh, i love that we are constantly colliding into one another i love that on my in my bible study like on sundays two people are leading one is a nigerian expat and another person is a is a woman who works for a university and then got me and then we've got all these other it's people beautiful. together and the way that we interpret or the way that we approach or the way that we come at scripture uh is densely layered and so for that reason the our it, it just changes our imagination toward the kingdom of god right mm -hmm. so i really love that um, but the other thing that I would say is I would say that uh, one of the things that um, I'm realizing or I'm beginning to think about now is, uh, so, you know, like, I mean, I think that for a long time, I mean, you could have called the American church like 
I mean, I grew up in like, I, I have to say that I grew up in a, in a cultural environment of Gnosticism. I mean, like, even though I was Christian, I'm mean, like, well, the body was really bad. And, yep, yep. Oh, and yeah. all you need is you need to free your body from the cage of, of, you need to free your soul from the cage of this mortal flesh because it was weighing you way down. Right. So that's why Perlandra, the second book in space trilogy, like made such a big difference for me because you know, Ransom is trying to figure out, well, how do I defeat this guy Weston? And, you know, like, he's like, what do I do? How do I like argue? Cause I can't argue with this guy. I mean, he's like too good at argument. And, um, and so he eventually realizes that this is actually an embodied person that he can do something about it at the level of embodiment, you know, like, now yeah, I, yeah. I don't even, I don't even, I'm not going to even pretend to to make an ethic out of it because I don't think you can, but I, I, that helped me like put these two pieces, I guess, together. Uh, but one of the things that I'm finding like so much fruit in actually right now is engaging our disabled brothers and sisters in conversations about what normative church look, life looks oh, like. Yeah. Yeah. We do so many things assuming certain levels of ability in our church, you know, and I think there's actually going to be, I think there's real gospel fruit in engaging people that are very different from us, but I especially want to give a shout out to people who, um, who might suffer some kind of physical disability because their thinking and their theology and their approach makes us ask all sorts of really good questions, you know, um, yeah. and I have to admit, I have so many blind spots when it comes to something like, Hey, stand up, let's sing together, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, or, yeah. Hey, um, we're going to put somebody on stage to do the communion meditation. Well, that automatically disqualifies all our disabled brothers and sisters, you know? And, um, and so those are some of the things that I think, how do we like, not just like make room, like as a, on a practical level, um, for conversations like these, but actually seek them out. And as we seek them out, like I, I, I have just found so much challenge as I've had conversations with people who are disabled, you know, there's a lot of interesting theology being done in the area of disability I've right got now. A, I've got a friend who's working on her dissertation. If you're listening, Angela Perigo. <laughs> Keep going. There should be some encouragement to you. She's uh, she's working on her dissertation, exploring essentially how can we make uh, church liturgy and our liturgical practices not just be inclusive, but to really allow um, to really help allow for or make room for to give. The blessing, maybe that's a better way of putting it, the blessing on people who are experienced disabilities to actually be visible leaders of our our liturgy in the church. So I'm glad you're thinking about that, Ted. Well, Paul, I mean, like even just the thing that you did, I mean, like I know that you were saying like, is inclusive the right word? I don't think it is. Um, What I have experienced from you actually uh, is you've included me in this conversation, right? Um, but the inclusion has been at the service of hospitality. Um, and what I've experienced from you is I've experienced you um, being hospitable to me and my story. Um, and what I hear in what you're saying is, 
is the thing I think that I think that we need to think about, which is we only think about hospitality, like we're hosting people in our home. Like if I think about hosting people in my home, I'm an Asian person. You're going to take off your shoes no matter how gnarly your socks are. You know, <laughs> that's just kind of how it works. Yeah. Um, but I feel challenged. Uh, and and this is some of the work that we've done in the vineyard. I've been, I feel challenged that in the work of like actually welcoming conversations like this, um, you, you in the position of power, you flip it and become the hosted. And so like, uh, hmm. so what I hear in that, con- in, in what you're saying, like, let's be open to conversations. What you're, what you're saying, but I hear what what I hear in what you're saying is a posture of hospitality where you are saying the thing that you care about and your preferences will hold sway. Yes. Yes. You know, um, cause I think that that's, I mean, I think that hospitality is, can be misunderstood, but I think that it's the right word. You know, how can we be, how can we practice hospitality toward people who may have never had a voice before or never had, uh, a co-laboring role. How do we, how do we practice that kind of hospitality? But as we do it, how do we come underneath rather than above? And that's, I just want to say, Paul, that's how I've experienced this conversation. Good. Oh man. I'm, I'm so, encouraged to hear thank that. You. Well, Ted, I'm, uh, I'm so glad that we finally did this. It's been, uh, it's been a long time coming. I've been, you've given me so much to think about and, and chew on and uh, I've, I've grown in the process. So uh, I w- would love to extend beyond just recording podcasts together to do, to have some more conversations. Oh um, man, I love so it. This was a blast. It. Thank you so much, Ted. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it helpful. Today's podcast, along with all the other podcasts and the videos that I do on YouTube, are made possible ad-free because people like you support on Patreon. So thank you to all who are already supporting on Patreon. The Deep Talks Patreon community is the primary place that you can go to provide some form of financial support to continue this podcast and the, the videos that I do on YouTube to make sure that those can continue on free of advertisement. Speaking of videos on YouTube, you may not be aware that Deep Talks has a YouTube channel, a YouTube channel where I am working to increase the amount of video essays that I do on the channel to help us explore theology and philosophy, these ideas that are embedded in our cultural stories, just like I talked with Ted about today. Just last week, I did a video on Luke Skywalker and Star Wars. So I'd encourage you and invite you to go over and to check out, become a subscriber on YouTube as well. The closer that we get to this first tier goal on Patreon of 300 patrons, the more I will be able to produce video content over there as well. You'll also find that on Patreon, I offer Q&A episodes. We have opportunities for Patreon members to gather in Zoom hangout times. We just had our first one just this past week where we had some great discussion about Christian attitudes towards violence and war. It's a great opportunity for us to do a little ironing and sharpening iron and uh, to do some distributed cognition to steal a line from John Verveke. 
If those are the sorts of things that you might find appealing and helpful on your own journey, I would encourage you to sign up over on the Deep Talks Patreon page at at the level of support that you feel is appropriate. You can check that out. There's always a link in the description of these videos. There's also a group forum discussion for this episode that you'll also find on Patreon. That's a great place to participate in discussion, not only with me, but with other people who are listening to this podcast. As always, I welcome your comments, your feedback, your objections, your critiques, all of it. Always, again, primary place would be Patreon first, but you can also find me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner, and I do my best to respond to messages and tweets that I get on Twitter uh, as well. My one final ask of you is that if you do find this episode to be helpful, consider sharing it with a friend. I don't do advertising. And so the only way people are going to get exposed to this podcast is just through word of mouth, through you sharing. So if you found it helpful, I would invite you to share it with someone else and to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I want to give a special thanks to Patreon supporters, Clint, Jesse, Micah, Sam and Nicole, Johnny, Julie, Ray R., John Michael, Michael Peterson, Anders, Michael H., Taylor S., Justin T., Paul Spencer, Stephen M., Sarah R., BJ, Sean, Eli, Rob, Hannah, Mike H., Luke H., Sam, Tim K., Paul R., Carolyn, and Josie. Thank you all for your support. I can't do it without you. Well, until next time, we'll talk again soon.